University of California Television presents this podcast of the secular, the religious, and the demands of citizenship, featuring Peter Steinfels. This talk was recorded in March 2006 and is part of the Walter H. Capps Center series from UC Santa Barbara. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. We celebrate one of our most important programs, the Martin E. Marty Lectureship on Religion and American Life. This lectureship was established by a generous gift to the center from John and Lillian Lovelace. And it allows us to invite to Santa Barbara annually a distinguished commentator on religious and spiritual trends. Peter Steinfels is perhaps known to you as the author of the Beliefs Column in the New York Times. A columnist he has written, or column he has written since 1988. He is also co-director of the Fordham Center on Religion and Culture, a center somewhat like the Camp Center in its, in its vision and efforts. He is the author of A People Adrift, The Crisis of the Roman Catholic Church in America, as well as an earlier book, The Neoconservatives, the men who are changing America's politics. He is co-editor of Death Inside Out, the Hastings Center Report. And he has written over 2,000 articles and essays on a wide range of topics, including international affairs, medical ethics, politics and religion, morality and warfare, and many, many other such topics. He has served as an editor of Commonweal Magazine and at the Hastings Center with its Hastings Center Report. Educated at Loyola University in Chicago, the University of Chicago, and Columbia University, he's been a visiting professor of history at Georgetown University and of American Studies at the University of Notre Dame. He and his wife, Peggy Steinfelds, were recipients of the Notre Dame Leterre Medal for Service to Church and Society in 2003. Today, Peter Steinfels will lecture on the topic, The Secular, the Religious, and the Demands of Citizenship. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Peter Steinfels. Thank you very much. Thanks to the CAP Center and to its supporters, to its home at the University of California at Santa Barbara. Thanks to Leonard Wallach, who shadowed me uh, every step of the way during the last seven months or so. Thanks to Professor Wade Clark Roof. And I'd also like to thank... uh, the waitress at, a very helpful waitress at Louis at the Upham Hotel, who said, um, I recognize you, uh, aren't you giving a talk, but I forget what the subject is. And I said, um, it's the secular, the religious, and the demands of citizenship. And she said, oh, I guess that's why I forgot it.
I would also like to thank the Reverend Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, James Dobson, Tim LaHaye, and Carl Rove, and so many others. Without the distress, outrage, even panic caused in liberal circles by the rise of the religious right, I probably wouldn't be here today addressing this particular topic in this university-affiliated setting. Perhaps I should also acknowledge the contribution of the Ayatollah Khomeini and other prophets of authoritarian and theocratic forms of Islam. They have forced all thoughtful believers and non-believers, Christians, Jews, Muslims, and adherents of other faiths, as well as agnostics and atheists, to reflect again on the meaning of the secular and the religious and their implications for citizenship. So what does it mean to become secular? Well, that question, of course, brings up a raging debate that has gone on for a long time about the so-called secularization thesis. This was the idea accepted by almost all the great minds in Western social thought through the 19th and for most of the 20th century that it was inherent in modernity that religion would decline. Only in the last part of the 20th century did that thesis run into a problem. The problem was the United States. In this almost exemplar of a modern society, religion showed a stubborn tendency to endure. So the debate bro broke out, and it became a kind of a match between European social scientists and American social scientists. The question was, was Europe the anomaly that needed to be explained in its secularization, or was America the anomaly that needed to be explained in its enduring religiosity? Well, at the moment, perhaps because the American experience seems to be confirmed by the rise of religious activism and militancy around the world, the Americans have proclaimed victory. I'm myself not at all so sure about that and wonder whether it may be an inherent national weakness for proclaiming premature victory. <laughs> but in any case, what it means to be secularized or what it means to be secular really requires us, as the best scholars have known, to disentangle at least three meanings of that word. The first of them is perfectly straightforward, and it's the classic version. Traditional religion cannot survive what Walter Lippmann called the acids of modernity. Religious belief and practice will steadily disappear in this view as societies become genuinely modern or enlightened, or as humanity outgrows its religious or, if you will, its superstitious childhood. In this sense, secularism is a respectable term for atheism, which is exactly the way that the term emerged in mid-19th century Britain. Perhaps a religious person could be pessimistically resigned to secularization in this sense, but obviously it is not something that he or she will welcome. 
The second meaning or view of secular or secularization is more nuanced. Becoming secular does not mean that religion need disappear. Religion may well continue as a source of personal meaning, formation of character, guidance for interpersonal relationships, inspiration in striving, or consolation in suffering and grief. Or it may continue as a kind of ornament on life, a link to the great art and music of the past, a solemnizing of certain moments of the life cycle, hatching, matching, and dispatching, as the old phrase goes. Or it can mean a weekly or seasonal break from daily routine. In all of this, religion for the modern person in this view of secularization remains thoroughly privatized. It advances no claim to a role in public life except perhaps by fostering private virtue, which we should acknowledge is no mean thing. In the public deliberations of a liberal, democratic, pluralist society, religious appeals and language, however, are out of place. If religious leaders speak out on public issues, they should couch their language, they should couch their argument in non-religious terms of the general welfare or the common good. In this sense, to be secular is to insist on rules setting limits to religion in public life. Some of these rules are constitutional, like the provision against religious tests for public office. Some are statutory or regulatory, like those dealing with discrimination on religious grounds in employment. Many are informal, a kind of rhetorical censure, for example, treating explicit religious argument or mobilization in public affairs as violating the spirit, if not the letter, of church-state separation, or a kind of etiquette, treating publicly religion as akin, being publicly religious as akin to talking too loudly or picking your nose. The secular, in this second sense, although not diametrically opposed to religion, is at, very le at the very least problematic, certainly for most major religions. And I will return to this in a few moments. The third sense of being or becoming secular is usually captured under the somewhat academic label of differentiation. Modernity, certainly in the West, has involved a functional dis differentiation and emancipation of different spheres of life, primarily the state, the economy, and science. An emancipation from pre-modern religious tutelage. Over time, each of these spheres of activity claimed an autonomy to proceed by its own laws, methods, and authorities, apart from sacred scriptures or religious authorities. Other spheres or subdivisions of spheres in varying degrees followed suit. Education, medicine, art, and so on, even spiritual and moral guidance in the form of modern therapy. 
We may think of a series of declarations of independence from religion in connection with particular individuals, Machiavelli in politics, Galileo for science, Adam Smith for economics. In fact, there were larger processes at work. The Protestant Reformation fragmented church authority. The scientific revolution enthroned a book of nature alongside the book of Revelation. As for politics, ambitious monarchs tried to enforce religious uniformity after the Reformation. The effort bred assassinations, civil violence, and prolonged warfare. Eventually, it sparked a reaction. Step by step, state-enforced tolerance, state-enforced orthodoxy mutated into guarantees of religious tolerance and freedom. And thinkers like Hugo Grotius and John Locke developed theories basing political power on human reason and natural law rather than sacred scripture or religious legitimation. The tragic Shivo case, which dominated headlines last spring, helps us clarify this understanding of secularization as differentiation. Religious authorities offered strong judgments, pro and con, about whether or not the feeding tubes, in that case, should be disconnected. But no one turned to the clergy to determine whether or not Terry Schiavo was in a persistent vegetative state or what prospects she had for recovery. The local bishop almost certainly had a view on how the family dispute should be resolved to which the husband and parents could have voluntarily submitted. But absent that voluntary submission, it was the courts following a complex pattern of law and precedence that decided the matter without regard to the bishop's opinion. It was in this sense, this third sense, that first John Roberts and then Samuel Alito presented themselves as the very models of modern secular people when they testified again and again at the Senate hearings that they would carry out their duties on the Supreme Court strictly in terms of the internal demands of American law and constitutional principles. And in this, I believe, incontestable and irreversible sense of secularization, we are all secularists, and our numbers driven by the three great engines of secularization, science, the state, and the market, are sure to grow. Indigenous indigenous healers will give way to modern medicine for HIV-positive villagers in Africa. Islam will accommodate modern economic principles of risk and reward, just as Christianity did, whether it becomes considered taking interest or not. Religious leaders will fight a losing battle to prescribe rules for artistic creativity. And a variety of ancient cosmologies and creation myths will adjust to the discoveries of the natural sciences and the cultural challenges of modern media. This does not mean that conflicts between religion and the differentiated spheres of modern life will cease. And I will return to that, too, in a few minutes. But first, having noted that the United States 
is thoroughly secular in this third meaning of differentiation and hardly secular at all in that first meeting, meaning of an inexorable rejection of religion by modern people, I want to return to the problematic aspect of the second meaning, the tendency to confine religion to the personal or private, where the United States stands somewhere in between. Secularity or, seculariz- secu- secularity or secularization, in this sense, reflects a real strength in the American experience. As a nation of multiple and often fiercely competing Christian groups, alongside a growing number of non-Christian ones, we have, with some difficulty, developed a healthy circumspection about religious matters. But if circumspection may be prudent, suppression or inhibition even if it's by social stigma rather than law, of a role for religion in public life, including political life, is quite another matter. I could develop at length the reasons why my own politics and the particular form of Catholicism in which I was raised have predisposed me to be wary of many religious interventions in politics from the spirit of crusading against godless communism during the Cold War to the Bible-based moralism and uncritical patriotism that marked the emergence of the religious right in the 1970s and 1980s. But at no point would it have ever occurred to me that my religious beliefs and adherence did not have any serious implications for political life or that my church and its leaders should abstain from publicly elaborating those implications on issues like racial segregation or whether military strategies or interventions met the church's criteria for just war or on abortion or physician-assisted suicide. As a Catholic, there were moments when I disagreed with positions church leaders articulated or felt that their articulation was untimely, imprudent, or ineffective. Nonetheless, I agreed with their determination to speak and act on major political matters. This is an outlook antithetical to a more recent liberal tendency to insist, especially after Roe v. Wade and the emergence of the Right to Life movement, that religion was a private affair with no place in politics. That tendency morphs from the separation of church and state to the separation of religion and politics, even to the separation of faith-based morality and public policy. As Yale Law School professor Stephen Carter pointed out in his book, The Culture of Disbelief, it had not been long since liberals strongly supported the faith-based, religion-infused civil rights movement. Roe, Carter wrote, changed the rules. And yet in the mid-80s, liberals welcomed the Catholic bishops' pastoral letters on nuclear armaments and on the American economy. They were seen as antidotes to the arms buildup and the market enthusiasms of the Reagan administration. Conservative columnists and editorial pages became the ones objecting to religious leaders treading on turf that properly belonged only to politicians and policy experts 
and, of course, to columnists and editorial pages. It is always hard to avoid the suspicion that nine-tenths of the objections and arguments about the proper relationship between the secular and the religion, religious in politics boil down to the question of whose ox is being gored. My own politics and my religious background certainly led me to look amiss at the manner in which the organized religious right, and to a lesser extent, the broader evangelical movement, have been injecting themselves and injecting religion into politics. Yet it seemed incumbent to insist that conservative religion's re-entry into the public square was in itself a legitimate act of citizenship and not a subversion of the First Amendment. But wait a minute. What about the acceptance of the modern differentiation of spheres generating their own principles, procedures, and authorities? Isn't one of those spheres government and political life? And doesn't that effectively commit religion to sticking within a single proper sphere of its own, namely and most naturally the private and the personal? My answer is no. (coughs) The modern differentiation of spheres does not imply discrete and impenetrable territories like separate planets, but something much more dynamic, fluid, overlapping, intersecting. I would like to look at this first from a theological perspective and then from a sociological and political one. The theological perspective starts with the Hebraic and Christian answer to one of the basic religious questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? That answer in this perspective is creation, creatio ex nihilo, creation from nothing. Existence is God's self-gift, and that self-gift, which we can call grace, did not just occur once and then retire from the scene. It is continuing. It sustains the being of all that that is. At every instant, the world is held in being by God's sustaining action. Without it, we would be the nothing from which all that exists was created." If this is true, writes one theologian, Michael Himes of Boston College, and I quote him somewhat at length, if this is true, then we cannot make an easy distinction between the sacred and the secular. There is no separate realm of the sacred, no point in our experience, no moment in time, no place in our world which can be set apart as the domain of God as opposed to the rest of our life, the rest of our world, which could then be regarded as merely ordinary life. God does not act side by side with natural causes. God undergirds all natural causes. God is the cause of there being any other causes. So we cannot divide our lives into sacred actions and ordinary ordinary or natural actions. We cannot say that celebrating the Eucharist is holy, but entering a voting booth or shopping in a supermarket or what we do at our work, or how we act in our schools, in our homes, in the marketplace, are aspects of life remote from grace. There is no natural part of our lives opposed to those 
supernatural moments that are the domains of grace. We do not live in two realms. We live in one realm that can be regarded from two perspectives. Does this rejection of a reality divided neatly into sacred and secular, natural and supernatural, conflict with the differentiation of spheres that I argued was the incontestable aspect of modern secularization? I don't believe so. What it does is suggest that the sacred, the graced, also operates in those differentiated spheres no less than in the pre-modern reality where religion tended to permeate everything and to do so quite explicitly. Modern science or economics may have evolved laws and procedures and authorities independent of those that were biblically based or sanctioned by religious authority. But one can nonetheless see the hand of God in those spheres, no less than in the explicitly religious outlook from which they have become differentiated. Pioneers of the scientific revolution captured this idea in their tactical appeal to the book of nature as a source of revelation alongside the Bible, the book of Revelation. So yes, in one important sense, John Roberts or Samuel Alito are quintessential secular men when, qua Supreme Court justices, they make themselves answerable to the Constitution and the huge fund of constitutional jurisprudence rather than, say, to Deuteronomy or papal encyclicals and all the surrounding fund of scriptural and theological exegesis. But insofar as the differentiation of constitutional law and democratic limited government from religiously anointed rule and established churches have proved, have provide, have proved critical to social peace, individual dignity, and human cooperation, it is accurate to say that Roberts and Alito are also acting in their work religiously. Rather than compartmentalizing their lives, religious folks on weekends, constitutional interpreters or scientists or entrepreneurs or whatever the rest of the week, they exercise their faith in carrying out their secular duties. That, I'm afraid, can make all this sound too easy. Conflict between the book of nature and holy scriptures did arrive in the 17th century in the debates about science. And conflicts between religious and secular principles and authorities, particularly in politics, will arise today. The modernity that gave us differentiated spheres of life has not put an end to conflicts among them. We should note that these conflicts arise not just between religion and other spheres, but among all the spheres. For example, consider abortion, or better yet, a fertility treatment requiring the destruction of embryonic human life. Is that a medical scientific issue? A legal issue? A policy issue? A religious issue? Or perhaps in the economics market sense, simply an economic market issue if someone can pay for it, why not provide it? In truth, it is all of these. But which has ultimate sway? 
In a society that is secular, in this sense of differentiated spheres, religion is no longer the default authority, but it has not disappeared as a potential force. In many cases, religion will not abdicate its claims to be the ultimate judgment judge over ends and means. It can challenge the jurisdiction of other spheres with its own definition of what is at stake in such conflicts. Just as science has forced religion to reinterpret many of its texts and myths, religion can question and force moral reflection on basic assumptions and methods and concepts in other spheres, whether science, economics, or state action. But unlike in the pre-modern period, it will just do so as one of several shoving contenders. Which brings us back to the question of what are the rules for that pushing and shoving, in particular as it takes place in politics. With the First Amendment, we have certainly set one limit to that contention. The coercive power of the federal government expanded in more recent times to all government cannot be used either to establish religion or to restrict its free exercise. But all our intricate jurisprudence governing displays of the Ten Commandments <coughs> or the rights of a sect of hallucinogenic tea drinkers does not touch a host, a host of other questions with profound moral implications. War, poverty, access to health care and quality education, decisions about human life in its earliest and latest stages, environmental protection, fair distribution of the burdens and benefits of our economy, both between classes and generations. Should religious traditions and organizations and leaders speak directly and explicitly in their own religious terms to those topics? Should religious citizens mobilize or cast their votes on religious grounds? The answer of some Americans is no. They would extend the rules for governing religion's place in politics well beyond the letter of the First Amendment's separation of church and state. They call for an ethic of citizenship, requiring that in a liberal, democratic, pluralistic society, political debate, deliberation, and voting must be limited to the kinds of vocabulary, appeals, and arguments that are accessible to all reasonable citizens, or express values that all reasonable citizens could accept, or offer reasons that derive from the common liberal democratic culture. The formulations vary, but the upshot is the same. Religious appeals and argument should be banished from political deliberation or as grounds for casting one's vote. In some versions, religious discourse would be admitted, but only if it were complementary to or in addition to some non-religious reasoning. This ethic of citizenship would in effect make a social norm, although not a legal restriction, of the second meaning of secular. At first glance, there is much appealing about this proposal. If there should be no religious tests for public office, why not no religious arguments for pub public deliberation and choice? 
isn't the latter discriminatory in the same sense as the former. This proposal is also clearly rooted in history. Didn't the liberal state, as a sphere differentiated from the church, stem from the fact that religious appeals and discussions proved intractable and inflammatory? Something in my own Catholic background also makes this idea attractive. Catholicism has given a place of pride to philosophy as well as theology and kept alive its own version of natural law. In the 1980s, when the American Catholic hierarchy drafted their pastor, its pastoral letters on nuclear war and on the U.S. economy, the bishops attempted a kind of civic bilingualism, first examining these topics from a biblical and theological perspective that believers could connect with, then elaborating their arguments in philosophical or natural law terms addressed to all citizens regardless of religious belief. In other words, they observed this proposed ethic of citizenship by making a religious appeal and using religious vocabulary only alongside non-religious argument. Now, I would recommend such bilingualism whenever possible. It has many practical advantages, although, as I noted, it did not spare the bishops' accusations that they were inappropriately intervening in politics. Despite my sympathy, in the end, I find the proposal that religious appeals and language be excluded from political discourse or allowed only as accompaniments to non-religious arguments, unconvincing. There are some rather abstruse and impressive debates among political philosophers and law professors about this, which it would be impossible for me to present here, even if I were capable of it. But instead, I would sketch my own seven reasons, depending, as they do, on some of those arguments, for my doubts about such an ethic of citizenship. First, this bar on religious discourse appears at odds with the liberal democracy it is intended to defend. Many people in America, quite possibly a majority of people, understand their morality and life purposes in religious terms. To gag them on this point is to seriously penalize their political participation. Sooner or later, that is likely to provoke an angry and resentful reaction. Second, virtually every important movement for political and social change in American history has been fueled by religious appeals and rhetoric, from abolition and women's rights to the civil rights movement. Any proposed ethic of citizenship that either has no room or only grudgingly makes room for paradigmatic cases like the discourse of Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. is hardly satisfactory. Third, a bar on religious discourse hinders substantive discussion of public choices. Faced with substantive questions about, say, what we owe human lives in their earliest or latest states, or why, after all, do we have state recognition of marriage rather than private contracts between partners, we prefer to focus on matters of equal treatment, 
safety regulations, public health, or procedures. The reason is that so much of our vocabulary for examining basic moral questions about who we are and how we should live are religion-tainted. This, too, has a price. As the political theorist Michael Sandel has written, fundamentalists rush in where liberals fear to tread. Fourth, the danger of religious divisiveness is exaggerated. This is not 17th century England. Current anxieties focus on the religious right and the new political involvement of a broad evangelical constituency. Every concrete sociological study that I know of demonstrates that, despite the harsh talk of some religious leaders, religiously conservative voters are neither blind nor fanatic followers. And many years' experience in both very religious and very secular milieus convinces me that when it comes to politics, neither has a monopoly on absolutism or intolerance or noticing the speck in the other's eye while ignoring the beam in their own. Fifth, the ideal of limiting political debate and deliberation to non-religious appeals and language free of the drawbacks of religious discourse, accessible to all reasonable citizens, or limited to reasons that all citizens could in principle accept, that ideal strikes me as unrealistic and illusory. Of course, there are many non-religious arguments and reasons sufficiently compelling to virtually everyone. Public health dictates that it is far better to be prepared for bird flu than unprepared. But what happens when, as a society, we we must tackle the genuinely difficult questions? For example, how much of our individual freedom we would sacrifice to reduce the risk of an outbreak of bird flu? Then we find that non-religious language and argument rest on deeply held personal commitments, intuitions, images, upbringing, and narratives that are no more accessible to all reasonable citizens or likely to elicit agreement than are their religious equivalents. There are non-religious convictions that deserve the description faith claims every bit as much as religious ones. Is there, as has been supposed, a neutral language for political deliberation one that does not already have wrapped within it any particular moral or ideological perspective, one that would allow allow citizens to set aside their religious commitments and conduct their debates on a single level playing field? Well, that some language can be more neutral than others, I would grant. But I believe that thoroughgoing neutrality is impossible. And today, most people who have given this matter some thought agree. Sixth, a restraint on religious discourse in politics discourages honesty. If citizens sincerely hold to a political position for non-religious reasons, as well as for their own religious convictions, all to the good. In a diverse society, as they probably know, they are more likely then to find allies. But if they are only putting forward non-religious reasons, 
or perhaps emphasizing them, when in truth their religious convictions are the real, perhaps the sole, basis for their political stances, then our political deliberations are muddied by dissimulation. Better that citizens state their most basic arguments, religious or not, and then be confronted, as they almost certainly will be, with criticism and counterarguments that will certainly contribute, among other things, to the health of religion as well as to the honesty of our political deliberation. Seventh and finally, most faiths and the language and arguments that they generate are nowhere near as monolithic as their critics often suppose. Major faiths and their sacred texts and authoritative interpretations are rich in internal tensions and alternatives that can be the basis for raising questions and carrying on deliberations within the believer's own framework. So where does that leave us? We do not have to choose between chasing the chimera of a common, religion-free, and preferably neutral language in which to conduct our political deliberation, or being reduced to shouting and power plays, pitting one group's rock-bottom religious commitments against another's. I assume that there are many run-of-the-mill political questions that can be handled on the basis of common denominator concerns about public safety, the general welfare, or the common good. But in those pivotal moments when we cannot resolve an issue without bringing into play our ultimate commitments, whether religious or non-religious, do we need a common language at all? What if I acknowledge the Catholic Christian premises at work in my advocacy on some such issue, exposing them to the critique of a Buddhist or Muslim or agnostic fellow citizen who can indicate why they cannot accept those premises or perhaps why those premises do not necessarily lead to the political position that I advocate? What if I do likewise in response suggesting to the Buddhist that my political cause could also flow from Buddhist premises or from Islamic premises in the case of the Muslim or for the agnostic from premises compatible with her agnosticism. Similarly with those non-religious commitments that have a quasi-religious status in the real world, I can propose to the feminist that the feminist premises determining his position on some basic political issue are wrong, or perhaps at odds with other, premises, with other premises in the rich array of feminist thought. Or I can argue that my own specific position is actually more consistent with his own feminist premises. And so on, with the utilitarian or the libertarian, as with the evangelical or the mainline Protestant, or the Mormon or the Orthodox Jew. The point is that we do not need to picture political deliberation as taking place in one big stadium, but as a great chain of overlapping conversations carried on in different terms with different citizens and deliberating partners. When asked to signal in advance what I was going to say today, 
I refer to the confusion Americans now feel about the place of the secular and the religious in American politics. When we clear away this confusion, I suggested, we may actually discover new demands on being an active citizen in a pluralist America. Now, I'm not at all confident I have cleared away the confusion. I always think of the comment made by the literary and social critic Irving Howe at the end of a weekend conference on democratic socialism. But we're leaving confused, protested one of the young activists attending the conference. Yes, said Howe, but hopefully we are confused at a higher level. <laughs> Whether or not I have cleared away some confusion or merely elevated it, I would like to close on that question of discovering new demands for being an active citizen. One demand is simply that we distinguish the different meanings of secular. If we are religious, we must, in my opinion, come to terms with the implications of that third sense, the differentiation of spheres, while rejecting the first and second senses, the abandonment of religion or its exile to private life. If we are not religious, we must separate what I consider the fundamental demand that religions take account of the differentiation of spheres from what will obviously be religion's understandable resistance to the other meanings of secularization. Another demand is, is honesty. Religious believers active in politics should not suppress or hide their religious convictions or rationales. The intelligent design controversy was rife with such dishonesty. At the same time, opponents of measures that are identified with religious concerns should not use inflated accusations of violating church-state separation as a manipulative end run around arguing about those measures on their own merits. But the most significant of the new demands flowing from the idea of overlapping deliberation if we refuse to banish religious commitments and premises from our public and political conversation, but instead to engage those premises in one way or another, then as active citizens, we are going to have to have some working familiarity with the religious traditions of our fellow citizens. We will need to know some of their traditions' basic teachings. We will also need a sense of how they feel and think and think about what others think about them and how they worship and how they worry about their kids, the kind of thing that requires imagination, empathy, or best of all, real-life encounters. I'm not naive. I do not expect all Americans or even all politically active Americans to become walking fonts of comparative religion or participants in religious dialogue. I do think gross religious illiteracy is now an impediment to active citizenship, an illiteracy that begins in many cases with the religious traditions of our own upbringing. I do think that opinion-shaping elites should both manifest such empathetic knowledge of religious traditions themselves and encourage it in others. Of course, the wider and deeper this knowledge, the better. 
but it need only extend, first of all, to the faiths and communities that are of particular political importance at a given moment, while standing ready to learn about new ones as they emerge. We are at least 20 years past the time when active citizenship and political engagement in the United States demanded some knowledge of evangelical Christianity, some feel for its style, some exposure to its publications and voices, the ones that evangelicals themselves recognize as representative and not just those anointed by the media or promoted by their own skills at self-promotion. It is 10 years past the time when something similar was demanded in regard to Islam, and it is long overdue that something similar occur regarding non-believers and that fast-growing group that tell pollsters none when asked about their religion, and yet, in surprising numbers, also tell pollsters that they pray and expect to go to heaven. Evangelical citizens owe secular humanist citizens some accurate and empathetic religious understanding, or should I say our religious understanding, and vice versa. I'm not calling for the peaceable kingdom. Politics is and will remain an arena of conflict. It will remain an arena where deep religious differences will prove troubling, but that is because it is an arena where all deep differences prove troubling. In that arena, what is religious cannot expect automatic or inbred deference. That is the incontestable outcome of modern secularization. But religious voices should not be muzzled either. That would be a questionable form of modern secularization. To neither defer to religious claims nor to muzzle them, but to engage them in what I have called overlapping deliberation, we have to develop new skills as citizens honesty, and some significantly enlarged and empathetic understanding of the religious traditions and communities most likely to be engaged in political struggle. John Courtney Murray, the American Jesuit theologian, whose work was critical to the Second Vatican Council's Declaration on Religious Liberty, once made the shrewd observation that genuine disagreement is a rare achievement. He had in mind the genuine disagreement that gets beyond caricature and that requires mutual understanding of the moral universe of those engaged in debate and deliberation. I suppose that my talk today can be boiled down to the question of how, when it comes to religion and politics, we can make genuine disagreement a great deal less rare. I look forward to answering questions so that we can make our own disagreements a little more genuine. And thank you for your attention. Peter Steinfels has agreed to take some questions, and so we do have a bit of time. I, I would ask it would, you would come to one of the two microphones here, if you have a question, and I will, I will recognize you. I see someone over here. You can direct your question to Mr. Steinfelds. Thank you. That was, uh, I really appreciate um, everything that you said. I'm an old Jesuit myself, so I have some uh, specific sympathies. 
Um, one of the things that really strikes me in today's uh, New York Times in the book review section is some really interesting articles. One is uh, the front page is on a book called American Theocracy by a Republican strategist named Phillips, who sort of sort of questioned his own um, participation in forging the conservative coalition with the extreme right of uh, religious fundamentalists. And one of the things that strikes me about your comments and, and, um, and your insights uh, versus the uh, very rational, very reasonable. And within the context of the, the dominant strain of Christianity that's, that uh, within the uh, political sphere today is, I would say, not rational, and it's more amygdala-based, if we're going to even think from the, from a, uh, the standpoint of cognitive science, uh, and, and is not neocortical-based. And in other words, it's fear and suspicion and all of the old brain types of things that get people motivated. And it's also what I would say is an Old Testament form of religion. It's not a New Covenant-based Christianity based on the teachings of Jesus, but is an Old Testament form of the old patriarchal father mode. And so that's something I just want to throw out there in terms of the genuine disagreements even within the, uh, uh, the religious sphere. And I consider myself a person who practices my faith. Um, and this, for those who become so overly secularized in, in, in our society, particularly within a liberal camp, I would just throw out there that I think it's, with, it's incumbent upon us to reclaim our own sense of spirituality and connectedness to religion and engage even within our religions this, uh, uh, this kind of discussion going on, not just the political sphere, but within the religious sphere. Um, first, in regard to the uh, book review in the uh, New York Times, I confess um, that I haven't read it. Uh, we go by the maxim, you can either write for the Times or read for the Times, but there isn't enough time <laughs> to do both of them. Uh, I would not deny uh, the observation that a great deal of political uh, religion-based discourse seems to be, as you said, amygdala-based and not cortical. Um, What I would argue, I think, is, first of all, uh, some of that is our own creation, Uh, And that if we look at the religious sensitivities, sensibilities, and positions that go beyond some of that surface strife, we would find them somewhat more modest and reasonable. I would suggest, for example, that the New York Times, in its coverage of evangelical politics, might pay a good deal less uh, attention to Pat Robertson who probably for at least 10 years has not been seen as representative of evangelical opinion among most evangelicals themselves and pay a little bit more attention to, say, a journal like Christianity Today, which has a number of political positions quite contrary to those of the editorial page of the New York Times, but which I think offers them in a form that we could properly call cortical rather than amygdalic or something like that. Uh, and I agree very much with your, uh, I have a little problem with the, with the picture of the Old Testament religion, uh, but I, I, uh, I don't think that's being quite uh, just to the Old Testament, <laughs> but I, I, um, I agree that we need to do what you suggested within our faiths uh, 
uh, as well as between them and as well as between them and the political uh, sphere itself. As a Catholic in the 2004 presidential election, I found myself confronted with two widely distributed documents. One was the document called Faithful Citizenship, which was distributed uh, by the, or was uh, issued by the administrative board of the uh, Catholic Bishops' Conference. And the other was a short document uh, setting forth basically five non-negotiable positions on which it was claimed all Catholics should base their vote. Now, I found myself quite out of sympathy with the latter and in sympathy uh, with the former. Uh, but I guess what I would say is the important point I would make is I wouldn't want to see a solution to that kind of conflict that simply ruled both of them uh, out, of, uh, out of the running. I think that in the end would be very bad for our politics and it would be bad for our religion. Yes, ma'am. Yes, um, hello. Um, my comment is a tornado hurtling through a junkyard will not make a Mercedes Benz. And likewise, um, it's the height of absurdity uh, for anyone to suggest um, that we have not been made by a divine order. And I'd like to hear your comment. Uh, I'm sorry, the last thing you said, it was the height of absurdity to, for anyone to suggest that? That we have not been made by a divine order. Well, I myself have made it clear in remarks that I believe that uh, we have, in fact, been created by a divine order. I guess I think that we need to spend people of your conviction and my conviction, therefore, really do have to spend... Uh, time listening to and trying to understand those that disagree on that point. Because where I think I disagree with you is in saying that as is the height of absurdity. I think that there are some profound theological challenges to my own beliefs and that other people with different personal narratives, different experiences uh, come out differently on that. Uh, I think is something that uh, calls for a serious listening and, in turn, a serious talking. And I think to, the, the danger is that, you know, if we start from the position that it, someone else's position is the height of absurdity, that conversation is not going to probably get, begin, or if it begins, go very far. Representative Capps. Thank you. Mr. Steinfels, you are following Martin Marty, who inaugurated this Martin Marty series, and I think it's uh, continuing uh, uh, really, really well for us. There's a lot to think about. Uh, I've, in the time that I have spent in um, some of our public schools in this community, particularly in middle schools, I'm, I'm thinking, as you were talking, about uh, something called character education or character formation, which has become kind of deliberate. Uh, and, I, and it's sort of personified by posters and banners that you see in the hallway sometimes with the, with the, the principles of uh, fair play and 
and uh, turn-taking, um, uh, even courteousness or politeness, um, pretty basic things that um, I think it's been agreed upon. A lot of all kids should should grow up knowing about. And I think about uh, the person at the uh, at the beginning of the Department of Religious Studies, uh, much beloved Professor Robert Michelson, who, though I'm not a scholar, uh, he was a dear friend, who talked about civic religion. Um, I, can you, for someone like me, fit that into to what you were talking about? Well, I, I will try. And first of all, since you introduced his name, I feel very honored to be uh, giving the lecture uh, with the name of the Martin Marty Lecture and to be following uh, Martin Marty is one of my uh, great heroes. Um, he's also probably the most precise and well-scheduled and organized person on the planet. <laughs> and I once was interviewed with him uh, after some event, and as TV people will do, I think it's really a form of asserting their authority and their power. They took an extra 15 minutes to move the cables back and forth and so on. And I could tell uh, Marty getting more and more agitated that his entire schedule for the next two months was going to be <laughs> disturbed. The point you raise is a very important one. Uh, I think that it reflects a certain uh, swing of the pendulum from a time when there really was a feeling, uh, in terms of what I spoke about, of the neutrality, that all our official agencies, especially the ones that strike most people as something most delicate, those that are involved in the socialization of children, had to exhibit a kind of neutrality among all ways of life as to what was the good life, even in regard to such things as, as you mentioned, fair play, politeness, and so, taking turns, and so on. I think the character formation movement, uh, besides being a response to perhaps very visible social concerns, uh, reflected a sense that that other view uh, really wasn't very realistic. We had to opt in some ways, even in very general ways, for some kind of notions of what the good life was, how we should live, how we should relate to one another. We couldn't be absolutely neutral about that. And this is what, in another sense, civic religion does. Civic religion was a kind of, uh, if you will, a kind of common denominator faith that uh, in the, particularly as it emerged as a practice in the uh, early uh, decades of the Republic and through the 19th century, was a kind of combination with the sort of acceptable to the deism of uh, some of the founders, acceptable to the evangelical uh, Christianity and its broad, earlier, non, more non-political sense that had a kind of uh, hegemony over American culture, acceptable to the Unitarians uh, who were in many leadership positions uh, on the East Coast. Um, and it was a sort of... Now, now that kind of civic religion... Um, there are two, maybe more than two, um, but there are at least two controverted points about it. Uh, one, 
how does it develop as the country becomes more and more pluralistic? It is easier for it to to be uh, to emerge as long as we were a generally Protestant Christian nation with strands of deism and Unitarianism and some free thought. So that way it was easy for people as recently as Franklin Roosevelt to make statements and issue proclamations using religious language, which we would now have a storm about if uh, George, Bush, George W. Bush uh, did that. Uh, now, partly there's a whole history and political context is different. The personal context is different. Uh, but so in the state of greater religious pluralism, uh, can we effectively uh, deal with that kind of common denominator, develop that common denominator la- language? I, I have a sense that there's more possibilities there than some of the critics think. The second point is more complicated. To what extent does the kind of furthering of that civic religion, the propagating of it, actually weaken the particular forms of religiosity with their own much more specific traditional bases uh, from which that common denominator draws? Because if the common denominator becomes it rather than simply the umbrella over a number of stronger religious and more specific religion and richer religious traditions and communities, then you can have a problem. And some people would say it's good to inculcate the virtues of fair play and politeness and taking turns, but at some stage, people have to, and not at the stage of elementary school, at least in its earliest stages, people are going to have to engage in a more complicated and multi-layered discussion, for example, and learning and training and nurture about what fair play, for example, actually is. Um, I'd like to probe your, uh, your third demand uh, for citizenship, namely the reduction of uh, religious illiteracy. And I speak to you as the very embodiment of the height of religious absurdity. If I, as an atheist... Uh, look at, say, Christianity or Muslim, and I ask myself, what do they believe? What are the tenets of this? My answer is everything. And if you ask me as a Catholic, what do atheists believe? My answer is everything. So if those perspectives are so broad, what does it mean to become less religious illiterate? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a little confused as to what you said about, as an, as an atheist, you believe, or as a Catholic, I would believe in conversation with you. Um, all I think I am thinking is that, in fact, um, many in the newsroom of the New York Times um, are highly educated, sophisticated people. But when it comes to religion, they really don't have much knowledge or sense of anything beyond the religion or non-religion of their own upbringing. And that's true for the non-believers in the newsroom as well as for the believers. 
And sometimes when you are a reporter dealing with an editor and trying to answer his or her questions about something that you have reported on or are submitting a a story on, um, it's as difficult to get beyond the predispositions and the assumptions of the believer who is basing all that on his or her own limited religious experience as it is that problem with the non-believer. I'm just saying that at this point in our history, I think that we need a great deal more literacy, still of an elementary kind, and a literacy that isn't simply book literacy, so maybe that isn't quite the right word, but a certain sensibility, a certain feel, a certain thing for other religious traditions than our own. Uh, David Brooks wrote a column in the Times, uh, maybe it was a year ago now, in which he raised the question of how many people among the readership of the Times would recognize the name John Stott, one of the outstanding evangelical theologians of our era, um, who all religiously literate evangelical leaders would look to, uh, but was somebody certainly simply off the radar screen of much of the New York Times milieu. Um, So I I think that's what I'm trying to to overcome, that we at least know something about the landmarks. Um, We don't simply go by, if I am a, a Catholic, I simply don't go by polemical Catholic um, apologetic uh, pictures of what atheists think and how they feel and how they react. Um, this is a little bit of a follow-up to the previous question as um, in addition to Representative Capps's question, but uh, I'm a senior at Princeton University. I'm writing my senior thesis on religious literacy initiatives in public schools. Um, and I'm wondering what you think is the responsibility of the American public school system in the production and uh, the development of the type of ideal citizen, citizenry that you've discussed. And moreover, how does the teaching and discussion about religion figure in that process? Am I going to be quoted in your... Uh... <laughs> no, I'm not, I won't write anything down. <laughs> well, that's a difficult question. I, I do think that the... Poss- that the, the, the Well, maybe the easiest part is um, we know that there can be teaching about religion uh, in uh, public schools. Uh, It's been decided by the Supreme Court. Uh, The Clinton administration um, issued a kind of outline. You're familiar with all this, I'm sure, about how it might be done. A number of states have put it in their curricular requirements. I... I, uh, think it would be valuable for us to have ongoing assessment of how that works in practice. This is teaching about religion um, without uh, teaching religion in the sense of catechetical instruction or formation. I think it faces, and I'm probably telling you only things you note very well, two big obstacles. Uh, One is the objections raised from within a number of religious groups that exposing their young people to um, to the religious views in a, as neutral a way as possible, and here's where we re- get that problem of neutrality, uh, is in fact 
in some ways uh, trespassing uh, on, on their religious convictions and on the role of the family. And that's similar to the debate about sex education. The second and probably even the greater obstacle is the problems that teachers feel because of how widespread religious illiteracy has become in our society. They don't know. They don't feel confident. Uh, they don't know what to do with that project. Um, so I, I really do think, however, uh, obstacles as they may face, as, as that effort may face, it is a very valid one. I also think that on the level of higher education, I think it should be just it should be taken for granted that people need some religious, illiter- some religious literacy and that this would filter down as to what is our standards of an educated person. About a week ago, I had lunch with an editor at an important uh, publishing house in New York who was the daughter of someone who had taught uh, a religiously connected topic at Harvard University. She herself had gone from, from, to Princeton, and she said that she managed to graduate from Princeton and, having never, and had never read the Bible. Now, I'm not sure whether the Bible should be required reading in the sense of read the Bible or fail, but I think there should be a certain notion that if you haven't read a good deal into the Bible, you are not an educated person. Um, and uh, likewise, I think... You know, there is a notion if you have no familiarity with Nietzsche and with uh, the other serious thinkers of, of challenging traditional religion, you're not an, educa- an educated person. So I guess those are the, the uh, uh, limping answers that I would uh, offer for your project. Thank you. I, pr- I appreciate the, um, the point about the importance of the study of religion, the Department of Religious Studies, and the CAP Center thrives upon that presumption. Yes, and I think this will probably be our, no, we've got two speakers, and these will be our, our last two. Yes, sir. Um, in the last uh, several years, there's been a lot of discussion uh, generally on, the, on a theme that was labeled intelligent design, and later uh, another, apparently other, but some people questioned whether it was really another uh, terminology, was introduced for a a similar point of view. And actually your paper was involved in a surprising way in this because uh, uh, the senior uh, Catholic uh, cardinal of Austria submitted, I think, an op-ed piece to the New York Times uh, on this subject. And uh, the matter came finally to what seemed to be a crucial uh, court case. And I was a little disappointed in the way it uh, sort of terminated there, because not really on the essential questions, but on the question as to whether Uh, one side in this argument had been truthful in in uh, in the facts they presented to the court. Um, I think that is somewhat related to your topic because 
teaching of science in public, excuse me, um, teaching of intelligent design in, in public schools. Well, intelligent design, uh, at least the way it was presented at first, was generally understood as being something religious, although that was just a change eventually, um, that it was then argued, no, it was not religious. Um, and public schools, I think, have a lot to do with citizenship. Uh, could I have your opinion on intelligent design? Well, yes. Um, I'll do my best. I, I think that there are I several... I should tell you that I'm a natural scientist. Oh, well, I mean, it, it seems to me that uh, from that point of view... Uh, intelligent design is a movement uh, which behind it has religious motivation, uh, which may be irrelevant to the question of whether it is true or not true, which has focused on a number of uh, difficulties in theories of neo-Darwinian evolution uh, and has uh, offered interesting criticism, but no uh, alternative framework similar to that that neo-Darwinian evolution offers for biological sciences in general. Um, I think its, its significance in America and the uh, kind of grassroots and surprising to me uh, opposition to evolution and the teaching of evolution um, has to do with the fact and, uh, that once one of my very liberal uh, educator friends acknowledged, uh, there is a tendency that evolution is taught not really in a scientific sense, but as a kind of alternative creation myth. And uh, evolution in certain versions of being presented uh, really does, even in, a, even in the versions that I would accept, uh, in certain versions, it really is an uh, anti-theistic uh, view. I, I remember the, uh, uh, the uh, very uh, fine discussion that was run on public television a number of years ago uh, where um, a number of scientists took on big questions was interesting that no theologian or philosopher was was uh, invited to join this group, but that the the title of the program, who which was a phrase from Stephen Jay Gould, a scientist who had a very sympathetic view about the relationship between science and religion, although I don't think his view ultimately was viable, but the phrase was the glorious accident, and that was a re reference to the order in the human universe and the existence of humanity. And now that's a theological statement. And that's the way that, that uh, evolution in its whole history, and I look at this as an intellectual historian, has often ended up serving as an argument in that. And that's why I think a lot of Americans are troubled, even beyond those who have a literal reading of uh, the book of Genesis, which, of course, is not at all my own religious tradition. Um, so I think that's the, the real 
you know, the crux of it. And I think that one of the problems, and, and this is a hard one for the previous questioner to decide, uh, where in our educational curriculum could we deal with those philosophical and theological issues about origins in a sense that goes beyond uh, and, and, and isn't dealt with or exhausted by the question of a science-based theory of neo-Darwinian evolution, as long, at least, unless it takes on the, the, the claim to be more than that and to be a metaphysics. Uh, so I guess uh, my, my only other comment is that uh, I didn't think the Times um, did itself well in the way they handled the op-ed page piece by Cardinal Schoenborn. Um, Cardinal Schoenborn's argument was one which found a lot of disagreement in the Catholic community, including from the Jesuit uh, uh, in charge of the Vatican Observatory, and uh, ultimately some statements of Benedict XVI seemed to be at odds with what Cardinal Schoenborn wrote in his op-ed page piece. But if I was op-ed editor, I would have certainly run that op-ed piece for its liveliness and its challenge. It provoked people and so on. What I wouldn't have done is put a subhead in the middle of it saying something about a change in Catholic teaching in evolution, on evolution, a, a phrase that itself appeared nowhere in, in the Cardinal's own piece. And as I wrote in a memo to some of my fellow editors, it's pretty hard even to define uh, what the Catholic position on evolution is, having gone back and forth and hither and yon uh, over the last 150 years or so. And um, that gets us, of course, back to the question previously of religious literacy or illiteracy. Can I uh, just make one uh, uh, comment there? Uh, I actually also sense that this piece did represent a change in the Catholic position on evolution because I read uh, with uh, some care the last statement uh, on evolution by uh, Pope uh, John Paul II, and it couldn't have been clearer. And it was certainly very different from that of Cardinal Schoenborn. It was, incidentally, that last statement by John Paul uh, which uh, was concise enough that I probably could reproduce it here, but we are perhaps running a little too late. But uh, in any case, uh, he concluded uh, that there was no conflict whatsoever between the position of the church and uh, Darwinian evolution. I, I, I would agree with you and I, that, that there was... There were elements in Cardinal Schoenborn's piece which were simply no more than a restatement of a position that any theist, any believer in God, would take vis-a-vis -vis evolution. But there were other elements in his piece which were indeed, as you suggest, different than those that John Paul had stated and which showed a sympathy with the argument, which I'm not sure that Cardinal Schoenborn really... Uh, understood that well about intelligent design in the United States. What the problem is, is that one statement by a cardinal, even the ranking cardinal in Austria, 
is not the way that the Catholic Church goes about establishing a position. Uh, that is something that takes a... a and, and by the way, the next day, the New York Times ran a above-the-fold front-page article about this whole controversy, a controversy which was generated by an op-ed piece the previous day, in the previous day's edition of their own paper, which suggested to me a rather tripwire mentality about this whole issue. And the, the question, what, what bothered me was, you know, the Catholic Church has debates all the time, and over time things are settled and some things remain unsettled. And it was this nature, that this notion that, boom, uh, an important cardinal says this and everything, uh, the Catholic Church is about to switch sides and ally itself with the Discovery Institute in Seattle. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us. And I, just a very quick uh, suggestion that uh, I agree about the religious literacy. And I'd like to ask you to reflect on perhaps the, the wider world of cultural literacy into which that could easily fit. From my perspective as a, as a historian of culture, there's also a serious issue that it would be fun to talk about afterwards, I think, about the history versus the present because, for instance, cultural and, shall we say, religious literacy um, in such areas as music history. So we're talking about a mass by Haydn and you go into a class today and say, well, this is the Kyrie and then, then following it is the Gloria and then the Credo and the students look at you like you're from Mars, you know. Um, but even if you give them that cultural literacy, literacy about what the Mass was, it isn't cultural literacy, um, religious literacy about what the Mass is today. So there's the whole complication of, of history in there. I'll simply take that as a, as a comment rather than a question um, and uh, agree with the problem. I remember when I... If you can all remember when people were uh, uh, eagerly or a actively playing the game trivia, and I discovered in the game trivia that there was a category called history, and what the questions under the category history were all about the Kennedy administration. <laughs> um, so I certainly, I certainly, you know, second the point of concern that your remarks raised. Well, Peter, you, you've provoked us to think and to think in ways that are right at the core of what it is this, this center is about, trying to address issues of religion and public life. This has been enormously productive. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv.